Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is But God by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, I pray today that we would hear you, that we would see you. Lord, that we would increase our knowledge of you. Your word and your power are not separate. Your word and your actions are not separate. And so, Father, today I pray that as your word goes forth, that it will reach good soil in our hearts and produce a harvest for you, we pray in your wonderful name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Exodus chapter 6. I'll answer the question from before. Uh, As I said, uh, I've looked at all the miracles in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and I have found that there is one commonality with them all. And you'll be surprised to know that it's not faith. You'll be surprised to know that if you read the Gospel accounts, some people had faith, other people said, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Uh, You'll be pleased to know that it's not prayer, because some people didn't even look at Jesus or say a word to Jesus, but Jesus touched them and they were healed. But what I have found is that every single miracle and every single supernatural act of God begins with a problem. The bigger the problem, the bigger the miracle. And so I ask a question before we go any further today, do you have a problem? Do you have a need? Do you have a dilemma? In a few weeks, we're going to come to what I call God dilemmas, but we're going to put them on the back burner for now because uh, although we would find ourselves somewhat in a God dilemma right now, uh, a little bit more about where we left chapter 5 in a moment, but I can remember uh, I have a fascination with mountaineering and mountain people that climb mountains. Not because I want to climb a mountain, uh, I really don't see the point, but... Uh, I am fascinated by those that do, and I'm fascinated by people devote their lives to getting to the top of Mount Everest and so forth, and hat off to Hillary Clinton, uh, not Hillary Clinton, <laughs> hat off to Sir Edmund Hillary. Because he got there without oxygen, right? No, no oxygen tanks in his days. They did it hardcore. But I can remember uh, one such journey... Uh, a man had been to the top of Mount Everest and him and his team had been there. And of course, every time these guys do this, they plan things down to the nth degree. They plan the time of year, they plan the seasons, uh, everything's mapped out day one, day two, everything like that, you know, all of those sorts of things. And, uh, but on this particular trip, they had made it to the top of Mount Everest, but on the way back down, they lost a couple of the team. Um, they hit weather they weren't expecting. They had been delayed longer than they had expected. There was conditions they weren't expecting. And there were those that were considered to be pretty healthy that suffered from oxygen deprivation, etc., etc., etc. And uh, his, the interview was a 60 minutes, and the interview was just reeling off all these problems that um, they had experienced. And this wasn't the first time. In fact, the guy he was interviewing that had been to the top of Mount Everest, he'd lost fingers from frostbite and all those sorts of things. And And so uh, it comes down to the point where they list off all of these problems and then the interviewer says to the the guy, the the, the mountaineer, he says, why do you do it? And he goes, oh, he says, it's it's obvious to me, he says, you've never stood on the top of Mount Everest. He says, because that question answers itself. 
And if we could press the pause button between chapter 5 and chapter 6 in Exodus right now, and, you know, we left chapter 5 last week with Israel going from worshipping to whining. Uh, I didn't title the message that, but I was tempted to. Uh, because we see that they begin in worship. God's word is received and, and, and the signs are encouraging. By the way, just as a digression before we go any further, miracles and signs never produce faith. The Bible is clear right through Scripture that some people see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and we're going to encounter it in the book of Exodus, and yet they waver and they complain, and and they lose faith. So miracles don't produce faith. But what we do find is where we left Israel last week, after starting so well, was things didn't go how they had planned. They had thought that God was going to come in, and and he was just going to uh, deliver them all in an instant. Moses had all of these expectations, and by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, what we find is Moses is saying things like, why? Why have you done evil to this people? Why? We know that the burdens were increased. Pharaoh says, you guys are lazy. If you're asking to go and worship for three days, and you guys must be lazy, so we're going to increase your work and, and so forth. And so uh, if you've got time to come to me and complain, I'm going to increase your work. And, and even Israel came to Moses and said, you've made us stink before Pharaoh. We, we, we no longer want to hear from you. And so things had gone from well, bad to begin with to worse. And Moses is like, why did you even send me here? And don't we ask those questions? When things don't go our way, don't we ask that question? Why? Why is this happening, God? Why did it have to happen this way? Uh, often our prayers sound like this, Father, please do this, and here's how I would like you to do it. <laughs> when Jesus was teaching us to pray, it sounded like this, Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. Here's some really powerful words. Thy will be done. And what God is waiting for is for us to slide a blank sheet of paper across the table and say, Lord, your way. And right now, with all that's going on in Israel right now, if we could press the pause button, maybe what we would say is, oh, that's easy. You don't know God. You haven't seen God. And God's all about revealing himself and making himself known. The deepest, most profound work that God can do in your life is to reveal himself to you in greater measures. A couple of things real quick. God never does all of it at once. Scripture is clear about progressive revelation, which looks like God reveals some, we step into that. God reveals more, we step into that. God reveals more, we step into that. Read the account of Abraham. God calls, he steps. God expands, he steps. And so it is in our lives. God reveals himself and we step into that revelation and he reveals more of himself. And this is why, it's it's the number one reason why, as a church, we worked our way through the book of Revelation. It's the number one reason why I think the book of Revelation and the teaching in the book of Revelation has been stolen from the church from silly conspiracy theories and shoddy teaching. The book of Revelation is not a one, two, three, A, B, C, this is what's going to happen in the future. Because I'll tell you now, you don't know. One person knows what's going to happen in the future, and that's God. What the book of Revelation was, was a message to seven churches who were suffering intensely 
And in the middle of that, what does God do? What is God's answer to, to seven churches? What is God's answer to his people that are being persecuted and martyred? What's his answer? I'm going to pull the curtain back so that you can see beyond your circumstances to the real truth. And that is, don't worry about Rome. There's one seated on the throne. Jesus is still on the throne. And today... Two of the most powerful words in scripture we're going to find are in the start of chapter 6. But God. Some translations will have, but the Lord. And we've just read through chapter 5. We've just got through all that's going on in chapter 5. And for those that missed last week, we we understand that there are moments and there are seasons in our life when when God places us in pressure tests just to see what's going on. We asked two questions last week. First question is, is there anything God cannot do? Yes. God's all-powerful? Yes. Is there anything God cannot do? Yes. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. We ask another question, is there anything God does not know? God's an all-knowing, all-wise God. Is there anything God does not know? And what we found out in Genesis chapter 22 was that when Abraham did not withhold his son, but got to the top of the mountain, God says, now I know. What did God learn? What was it that God learned through that process? Now I know, Abraham, that I have the number one place in your life and you will choose me. And there are moments and there are seasons in our lives when God tests what he has placed inside of us. But God, and there are people in this room, I am convinced, need a but God this morning. Uh, I love uh, the, the Bible's full of but gods. My most favourite one is in the book of Ephesians. If you read the first nine ver- verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It goes to tell us how uh, we were sinners and how we were uh, uh, completely wicked and sinful people. It finishes those set of verses with, we were all by nature objects of wrath. <laughs> Thanks for the pep talk, Paul. Verse 10 starts like this, but God. But God in his great mercy. I believe the church of Jesus Christ needs a but God. A little bit more about that later, but uh, difficult circumstances. We find through, what, what are we learning? What is, what is Israel teaching us? What are we learning about God? We are learning that sometimes difficult circumstances, they either destroy us or they develop a greater dependence upon God. God is all about removing your self-dependence and increasing your God dependence. You're welcome this morning. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. God, if you ever find yourself completely at the end of your rope, God's got you right where he wants you. Because then he can step in. Everything worthwhile, I'm just going to give you a hint this morning, everything worthwhile in your life is uphill. You're welcome this morning. Yeah, thanks for the pep talk, Pastor. Uh, that's why, uh, just as an FYI, uh, digress, I, like, I like digressing, but just as an FYI, the most profound encounters between men and God happened on tops of mountains. Uh-huh. Everything worthwhile encounters a journey, a cost. Three men saw Jesus in a completely different way at the top of Mount Transfiguration, completely revolutionised Peter, James and John. It was so good, Peter said, this is good. I'm, do- I'm paraphrasing now. This is the Sean English version this morning. It was so good at the top of the mountain. Peter says, this is good. Let us build a couple of tents and stay here. 
How many of us would have said, this is good, Jesus? But the Lord said to Moses, and I love what God's got to say to Moses. God is about to make himself known. Make, make, no, difference about, make no indifference about that. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. And, and that begins next week. We will see that God will answer Pharaoh's question from chapter 5. Pharaoh's question in chapter 5 is, who is the Lord? Well, you're about to find out, champ. Uh, and who is this Lord that I would bow to his authority? Who is this God that I would give my life over to him? Well, you're about to find out. Now you shall see. It's interesting, however, and the process is the same today, that God will make himself known to, yes, those who don't know him, but he begins with his own people. Yes. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, but first... I'm going to make myself known to you. Chapter 6 is very powerful how God does this. And what we see of God in these verses is profound. I, I, I love this. Uh, verse 2, God spoke to Moses. Notice how there's a conversation going on here. Wow. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. This is a really interesting verse. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But by my name, the Lord, he says, I did not make myself known to them. I revealed myself as God Almighty, but as I am the Lord, and a little bit more about that when we come to a conclusion today, I did not make myself known to them. So for those that have got most English translations should have a footnote next to the name God Almighty. And the footnote is that in the Hebrew, that is El Shaddai. And so what we find in uh, Genesis, uh, Yahweh is used in Genesis, but in a different context. But mostly God is referenced as Elohim, plural, or El Shaddai, which is the God Almighty. Elohim's a sermon for another day, but El Shaddai is an absolute message for today. What God is saying is, I revealed myself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. And if you read the accounts of those three men, you will realize that God revealed himself as God Almighty. He, God Almighty means he is the omnipotent God. I revealed myself as the all-powerful God. Is there anything impossible for God? And he reveals himself as the all-sufficient God. There's nothing lacking in God. Nothing whatsoever lacking in God. Often, God's omnipotence is best seen at moments of our impotence. I'm going to take the example of Abraham again. Abraham... Read the account. It says that Abraham was well beyond the age of conceiving children. Sarah was barren. There was no possible way in the physical that that they were able to bear children on their own, but God's power, his omnipotence. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. And oh, how the church today, there are, how the church of Jesus Christ today needs, to, needs a fresh revelation of God Almighty. The one who keeps his word, the one who keeps his promises, the, the God Almighty. We sing about the God Almighty. It sounds a little bit like this, Waymaker. 
He's the one that makes a way when there seems to be no way. He's the one that can restore when there appears to be no restoration. He's the one that is the light at the end of every tunnel. El Shaddai, the God Almighty. So God reveals himself as God Almighty. But as we go down, it gets better. By the way, we're going to reach a word in this chapter that is used for the very first time in the Bible, but it's enormously profound. We'll get to that in a moment. For those that are going to sleep, you've got to wake up for a moment. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. The land in which they lived as sojourners. The promise to Israel, the promise to Abraham was that they would inhabit a land and they do. It's a land with definite borders. It's a land with definite boundaries. The land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered, highlight that word, remembered, I have remembered my covenant. And you can read that and think, oh, what, God had a brain fade? God's sitting in heaven one day and all of a sudden goes, oh, yeah, that whole Abraham thing. I better go down and it's, it's like when we read uh, Genesis chapter 3, Adam, where are you? It's not like God missed, where do I put that bloke? That's not what happened. In the Hebrew language, when God is saying, I remembered my covenant, it's not like he forgot it. But God is announcing that he is making a determined decision that he will fulfill and he will move in power to fulfill that covenant. Something we see about God today that's very profound. We're going to jump ahead for a moment and I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Was it because of Israel's enormous faithfulness that God brought them into the promised land? Was it because Israel was super, super holy and filled with faith that God brought them into the promised land? In fact, was it anything to do with Israel at that particular time at all? It was all about God. It was all about God and keeping his promise and keeping his word to Abraham. What are we beginning to learn about God? We all love God's promises, don't we? We read through the Bible and and we love his promises, but do we also love his processes? Go back to all the promises that God made to Abraham and now have a look at the process by which he's using to fulfill that. And so this morning, I would, I would encourage every person in this room to grab hold of the promises of God because you can take those to the bank. You can take the covenant God, all of his promises about a relationship that we can have with him, all the promises about salvation, you can take them to the bank. And, but <laughs> I warn you, sometimes you may not like his processes. And how he fulfills those promises in our lives. Is this new? Is this just a one-off? When I was praying about this scripture, it was interesting because I thought, is this the only time this has happened? But when we read through scripture, this is everywhere. You know, fast forward 1,500 years and here we have... 12 disciples who quickly become 11. And weren't they in exactly the same situation? We have 11 guys that read all the prophecies about Jesus. They, they understood all the prophecies about Jesus, but in their mind, and in the mind of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of that day, in their mind, the Messiah was going to come, ride in on a white horse, depose Rome, set up an earthly kingdom, because yeah. all of the prophecies spoke about a kingdom. But then we have all of these guys where their Messiah is arrested in the garden and they all flee. One of them naked, by the way. 
because the whole that's a sermon for another day. But all of these guys run and hide. Imagine standing, put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Imagine standing at the bottom of the cross and hearing all the teachings of Jesus and going, what on earth is going on here? This is not how I expected that things were going to take place. I expected we were going to be sitting on the right and on your left and we were going to rule over. But this is not what I expected at all. The greatest but God in history happened three days after that when two ladies went to the tomb. They had spices in their hand. They were preparing a body for burial and they're still looking for it. This is nothing new. This is not a one-off. In fact, I'm convinced that most of us through our Christian walk have experienced moments like this where, God, what on earth are you doing? I'm all about your promises, but I'm not all about your processes all the time. He is a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his covenants not because of how great we are, but because of how great he is. He brings Israel into the promised land because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of his great power, because of his faithfulness. I stand here today, this is, I'm almost telling you my testimony of how God brought me to himself on eagle's wings. I didn't save myself, God saved me. We often paint a picture of, well, you know, some mystical trail with mist rising off it that we kind of walk to find God in some, you know, there's Yoda, but it's not quite. But at the end of the day, I would repeat the words of Paul. I was found of Christ. He found me. Amen. I didn't find him, he found me. He saved me not because I was super holy, not because I got my act together, not because I cleaned myself up. He kept his promises. He has been faithful to me. Why? Not because I'm enormously holy. You'd be surprised to know. <laughs> and everybody goes, we're shocked. <laughs> what happens in Tasmania stays in Tasmania. But I've remembered my covenant, so God has revealed himself as God Almighty. God has revealed himself as the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. But I love the next one. Verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will. God never tries anything. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will, underline, highlight, and circle this word, I will redeem you. It's the first time it's used in Scripture. I will redeem you. God is revealing himself as redeemer. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will redeem you. And that word in the Hebrew is goel, G-O slash E-L. I was going to put it up on the screen, but I didn't. It's not overly important, but it's a verb. And it's a verb that when uh, Israel do inherit the land, I'll give you a scripture reference in a moment, this word takes on a a whole new meaning. Uh, The best way to describe this word in the verb of redeemer here is a kinsman redeemer. If you want a scripture reference and you want to read it and what it looks like, read Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. I'll highlight for you in a physical sense what a kinsman redeemer is. But I'm going to paraphrase this morning because this is beautiful. Because a kinsman redeemer was one who would avenge, one who would protect, and one who would provide. But there's a clause at the end, even if it required personal loss. Now, kinsman redeemer was something very important because when they inherit the land, Israel, nation, this is how you act. And kinsman redeemer was, was something very important in how they interacted, but it teaches us something profound about God. Soren Kierkegaard, for those who know who he is, great commentator but also philosopher, picks up on this theme and he tells a story of the kinsman redeemer. It's a beautiful story, but it highlights what God is 
trying to reveal and to make known to us. Paints a picture of a king dressed in all these fine robes, a very powerful king that looks over a huge kingdom. In his travels one day, this king, this very powerful king, in his travels one day, he's not married yet, but he finds a peasant girl that catches his eye and captures his heart. Now this kingsman, he goes back, he sits on his throne, he knows. He knows, I'm king, I can go out and order that woman to be my wife. I can set forth a decree, I can take her as my wife, I can just walk into her village and just take her and make her my wife. But he knows, he knows that I won't be able to sleep at night because she's here not by choice, she's here because I made her. She's not here because she really loves me, she's here because I forced her to come. So he does something profound. He takes off his crown, takes off his robes. He dresses like a peasant and he goes down to the village And he wins her heart. And he takes her back as his queen. That's a kinsman redeemer. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took off his crown. Still divine. Still glorious. He stepped into our world to win our heart. God is all powerful. God God could make us do whatever he wants, but he honours our choice. God chooses to win our hearts. He is our redeemer. He is the one who will avenge. He is the one who protects. He is the one who provides. And Jesus did all of that at his own personal loss. I am the Lord, he says, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse 7, I love this part. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Something's different now. God is revealing himself in a far more personal way. What God's saying to Israel is, you know what? I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. But I'm not merely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am your God. I love how this is highlighted in the New Testament. For those, if we read through the epistles and read through Paul's epistles, you'll notice something in his early letters. In the early letters like Romans and Corinthians, he uses language. If you listen to the language he uses, intentionally uses in those epistles, he starts off using language like this, the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The Lord and Saviour, nothing untrue about that, but but something dramatic happens in the life of Paul and we see it in his language. Uh, Through the middle letters, he moves from the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And and he's writing to the other churches and he's speaking about, no longer about the Lord and Saviour, but our Lord and Saviour. And then what he does is something really profound. By the time he's writing to Timothy in his last letters, he uses language like this, my Lord and Saviour. Something deeply profound had happened into the life of Paul. God had made himself known. God had revealed himself to Paul. Paul was, uh, what's Paul saying? Uh, Jesus is not just a God. Jesus is my God. Jesus is not just a redeemer. He's my redeemer. Jesus is not merely a saviour. He's my saviour. 
Paul says things like Jesus in whom it delighted him to show me mercy. Wow. Paul would say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief. You'll have to forgive Paul. Up until that point he hadn't met me. No amens, praise God. Last week for those that read the pastor's comments, this is highlighted beautifully through the life of the disciple Thomas. You see, what had happened was Thomas had followed... Thomas in chapter 11 of John says, let us go with Jesus to Jerusalem, even if it means we die with him. Oh, okay. Wow. Sounds pretty bold, right? Give the guy a couple of weeks, right? Give the guy a couple of weeks. Jesus has died. He's out doing his own thing. And the disciples say to Thomas, they say, we've seen Jesus. No more communion for you guys, is what Thomas says, basically. He says... But what Thomas actually says in the final chapters, of he says, you know what? Unless I place my finger in his hands on my hand and his side, I will never believe. I don't care what you guys say. I don't care. Any, I will never believe. If you fast forward in that chapter, you come down to a line where Thomas will say, my Lord and my God. But in between, something very profound happens. Firstly, Jesus enters the room and doesn't open the door. (laughs) Jesus enters the room and he comes up to Thomas. I love this. He doesn't tell Thomas off. He doesn't scold Thomas. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He reveals himself to Thomas. He says, Thomas, put your finger in here. Put your hand here. Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. And do you know that that frightened, scared little man that said, I'll never believe, from that moment took the gospel to India, for my Indian friends here today, took the gospel to India and after important dignitaries were converted at the preaching of Thomas, he was openly and publicly flayed because he said, I will never stop speaking about Jesus. I mean, they were nice to begin with. They came to Thomas and said, you need to stop talking about this Jesus. And he says, you don't understand. I can never stop talking about Jesus. Paul would happily be marched out to be beheaded under Nero. Church historians, we don't read this stuff in the Bible. Church historians speak, some people may not know this, but Peter had a wife. Church historians record Peter in prison, his wife being walked out to be martyred, and Peter clinging to the bars of the cell is yelling out, Remember the joy of the Lord. That same Peter that said, I don't know him. He's clinging to the bars. That same Peter that says, I don't know this Jesus, says, if you're going to crucify me, 
you crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. What had happened in their life? He's no longer a God, right? He's no longer a saviour. He's my saviour. I am convinced that what we need is not more willpower. I am convinced that what we need is not more programs. I am convinced that what we need is not bigger buildings and, and all those things are great. What we need, what will centre us as the people of God, is not more miracles, but a greater knowledge and a revelation of the God of the universe. When we see him, the more we know him, nobody can take that away from you. This chapter finishes because next week we move into chapter 7. This chapter finishes, verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go. Listen to this. To let the people of Israel go out of this land. Nothing's changed with God. The plan hasn't changed. Ask Jonah. The plan never changes. Verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But God. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. Or the best way to understand that word is he gave them a commission. Moses, nothing's changed. I am still going to deliver my people. I am still going to reveal my power. Pharaoh will drive you out of this land. I will display my power. Such a way. Friends, today I have good news this morning. We serve a God Almighty who keeps his word, who has redeemed us for himself. I pray that each one of us would grab the revelation that he's not a God merely, but he's your God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you for Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I thank you, Father, this morning that you made yourself known in the person of Jesus Christ. The God-man. My Saviour my Redeemer, lover of my soul. Father, today I pray, lead us to know you more. 
to see you more, to experience you more. In your wonderful name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.